We are in a series here in Mark chapter 12. So if you turned your Bibles to Mark 12, verse 18, there's a series of questions here that Jesus has asked between Mark 11 and 12. And we're sort of picking them off one by one as we go through these weeks in May. So Mark 12, verse 18 through 27. I also want to mark uh, or read two other passages. One of them is Exodus chapter 3. I know it says Exodus 6, but it's actually Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. And Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 10. I'll give you a moment to find those. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Deuteronomy. Chapter 29, Deuteronomy 29, verse 10. Let's stand together as we read God's Word. And let's begin in Exodus chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, a fire, out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Deuteronomy chapter 29, beginning in verse 10. Moses is renewing the covenant between the God and the Israelites. Verse 10, you are standing today, all of you before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders and your officers and all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God, as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not to you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then he died and left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, 
whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels. And as for being dead, the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, and you are quite wrong. You may be seated, and we'll take a moment to reflect on God's Word. At this time, we'll dismiss the kindergarten and first graders. And if you have your Bibles turned open, we'll be spending most of our time here in Mark chapter 12. Some of you may have read about this. If not, I'll read it to you. Joshua Bell emerged from the metro, this is in Washington, D.C., and positioned himself against a wall beside a trash basket. He was nondescript, a youngish white man in jeans, long sleeve shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. From a small case, he removed a violin, a place in the open case at his feet. He threw in a few dollars as seed money, and he began to play. For the next 45 minutes in the D.C. Metro on January 12, 2007, Bell played Mozart and Schubert as over a thousand people streamed by, most hardly taking notice. If they would have, they might have recognized the young man for the world-renowned violinist that he is. They also may have noticed the violin he played, a rare Stradivari worth over $3 million. It was all part of a project he arranged by the Washington Post. Quote, an experiment in context, perception, and priorities, as well as an unblinking assessment of the public taste. In a banal setting, at an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend? Just three days earlier, Joshua Bell sold out the Boston Symphony Hall with ordinary seats going for $100. In the subway, Bell garnered about $32 from 27 people who stopped long enough to give a donation. The Washington Post and Joshua Bell got an answer to their experiment. In a banal setting, at an inconvenient time, Beauty can be missed. You and I this morning sit in a very banal setting, very ordinary. For some of of us, it's an inconvenient time. Our mind races like the D.C. Metro. We're in a hurry, even though we're sitting still, we're in a hurry. Because we've got to get to something that's important or great. And my concern every Sunday, but this Sunday particularly, is that you would race by beauty, eternal, transcendent beauty on the way to something very ordinary. So let's pray that that doesn't happen for any of us. Let's pray together.
Lord, we, we live in a world in a hurry. I, I can think of uh, high school students now or college students a week ago in a hurry to get through an exam, in a hurry to get to the summer. Some of us in a hurry to get through a situation that we're in, in a hurry to get from one place to another. And we are here today, and we're going to take a look at something eternally beautiful. And I'm praying right now that there would be no person here that would race by on their way to the ordinary and miss the extraordinary person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, like I said, we're in a series. When you turn in the Gospel of Mark to chapter 11, the final six chapters are dedicated to the last week of Christ. And you and I would know that as the Passion Week. And in chapters 11 and 12, we come across basically five different questions that Jesus gets peppered with as he's in this temple area. He's standing up in this area and people seem to wander by, some in the same day, perhaps in a couple of different days, and they're asking them these questions. And the first question we talked about in Mark chapter 11, verse 27, was a question about his authority. The chief priest, the elders, the scribes, he had already come into the temple area and he turned things over. And so they were coming to him and asking him, you know, what kind of authority? Where do you get your authority? And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Then in Mark chapter 12, in the beginning of the chapter, we talked about allegiance. Remember the Pharisees and the Herodians, these two different political parties. They came together and said, whose side are you on? And they talked about the image of We talked about the image of Caesar Tiberius on the coin. And today, in verse 18, Jesus is questioned by a different group here, the Sadducees. I know when you get get to reading these, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees, you just can't quite keep up with it. But if you think about the, the Pharisees and the Herodians... They're two different groups in a political scheme, like you might think of Republicans and Democrats. When you come across the Sadducees, you have two different religious groups. And you might think of them as the sort of the conservative and the fundamental, or the the conservative and the liberals. The Pharisees are the conservatives. They're the fundamentalists. They live by lists and rules and regulations. That's why they're always asking Jesus these questions. Why aren't you washing your hands? Why aren't you following the Sabbath rules? We've got a certain list here and you're sort of good enough or you can get in if you're living by the list and you don't seem to be living by that list. And they're always frustrated with Jesus about that. And then the Sadducees, who we don't see as often, are more like the liberal group. It's a very small group. Very small group of uh, sort of aristocratic, blue blood, name recognition men. And they're the kind of people that think because of how they've been born, because of their, their sort of environment in which they've grown up in, they now can sort of look down on people. They're smarter than most everybody else. 
And you get that sense just in this passage that the Sadducees have come up to Jesus. They're kind of looking down their nose saying, well, this poor fellow, he, he's not going to get it all. And so we're here. We're the aristocratic elite. We're going to help Jesus figure some of these things out. And there was a great deal of tension between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But what we see here is the Sadducees coming to Jesus. The Sadducees were people who didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in much of the miraculous. They didn't believe in any kind of spiritual realm. They didn't believe in angels. And so when they came across people who were like that, it was like, well, we're not in that sort of lower class, ignorant group of people that sort of believe in the supernatural. We're, we're smarter than that. We've figured some things out now. And one of the reasons it's helpful to think about this, also the Sadducees did not believe that all of the books of the Old Testament were authoritative. The only books that they thought had authoritative value were the first five books of the Bible, what we think of as the Torah. One of the reasons it's helpful to see these categories is because these categories that you see in the Bible are no different than the categories that you have today. And no doubt if you've been in very many conversations, you've run across somebody like a Sadducee's. Somebody who really doesn't believe in the supernatural. Somebody who doesn't really believe in the resurrection. Somebody who's cut up the Bible in some way to say, no, this part's authoritative and this part is not authoritative. There's nothing new about these categories. And when you come across these people today that carve up the Bible or reject the supernatural, people that are from the Jesus Seminar or many uh, public university religion professors... They think they've come up with some fresh new idea. And what I want you to realize is what they're coming up with is something very old and very stale. They're not coming up with anything new at all. And so we run in, we encounter one of these people in the Sadducees. They, they sort of approach Jesus with a swagger. The purpose of their question really isn't to get an answer. They're just trying to embarrass Jesus. You ever been in a conversation like that? Somebody's asking you a question. They don't really care about an answer. They're basically trying to make you look foolish or stupid or silly for the way you think or the way you believe. And so they take a law back in Deuteronomy 25. It's called leveret marriage. And it states that if a man gets married and he dies and they don't have any children, this marriage does not have any children, and the man has a brother then the brother would then marry the woman. And part of that was to keep the land and the inheritance and the family name together. This is a very unusual law for us, but you you would remember or be familiar with it mostly from reading the book of Ruth. Remember that? The kinsman redeemer, some next near relative, is going to come and purchase and buy back what's been lost in the death of a brother. And so we see that happening, and the Pharisees or the Sadducees come, and they take this law, and they create this sort of exaggerated scenario. What would happen, Jesus, if if um, there were seven brothers, and the oldest one got married to this woman, and then he died, and so it was the next brother got in line. Well, he died, and then the next brother got in line, and he died. Well, if you're the you know the fourth or fifth brother, you're getting pretty nervous at this point. It's in good match. 
Well, all, all of them, whether they're drinking wrong water or something is happening here in this scenario, and they're all dying. And finally, no, but there are no relatives, and the woman dies. And then, even though they don't believe in the res- resurrection, they say, well, what would happen at the resurrection? See, she would have seven husbands. It's, it's the kind of sort of question that you might get asked, well, is, is God all-powerful? And you would want to say yes, but you know when you're talking to the person, there's, there's some sort of little gimmick to it. And they'd say, well, can he make a rock so big that he couldn't possibly move it? And they don't really want an answer to the question. They just want to make you sort of wrestle around and feel silly about even believing in a God that has that kind of power. So the Sadducees sort of walk up into this conversation and more or less sort of just drop a bomb into the conversation. And they're just trying to watch Jesus sort of scramble around and see what he's going to do with the question. Well, so we get to see what Jesus does with the question. The first thing uh, I think it's helpful just to notice, and it doesn't really come across in the English text, is how abrupt Jesus' initial response is. When you read it, it just sort of sounds very kind. Is this not the reason you are wrong? I mean, doesn't that sound like a very kind, sort of generous response? And really in the Greek, he's looking at them and he's saying this, You're wrong. You, you totally missed it. You're way off base. There's no parable for the Sadducees. There's no, hey, would somebody get a coin here and let me have a little object lesson. There's no, well, let me ask you a question first, and then once I get your response back, then I can get you a response back. He looks at the Sadducees, who are just trying to make him look silly, and he says, you've got it all wrong. Guys, you're going in the wrong direction. Not all of the time, and probably not most often. But when you begin to talk to people about faith, and they begin to ask questions, sometimes you can ask questions back, and you can begin to lead them along in their their own thinking, and hopefully lead them into understanding who Jesus is. Sometimes you can tell a story. It's something like this, like pulling a coin out of your pocket. But there are occasions you get in front of some people and you just need to look them in the face and say, you're dead wrong. You, my friend, are going in the wrong direction. Because sometimes some people need this cold bucket of water on their worldview in order to sort of revive and say, hey, I've got this, I'm going in the wrong direction. Thank you for saying that. Well, that doesn't happen here with the Sadducees, but that's the way Jesus has approached it. And he says to the Sadducees, I want you to look in verse 24, you've really missed it on two fundamental principles. You don't know the Scriptures, that's number one, and you don't know the power of God. You have completely missed it in these realms. First, you don't know the Scriptures. Here I've sort of, when I read through this this week, and I just tried to picture this encounter, these Sadducees are coming to Jesus, and they're going to question Jesus about the Word of God. They're going to look down their nose and say, well, you know, we've been studying the Word of God. Well, what is Jesus called in in John's Gospel? He is the Word, what? That has become flesh. Who's going to know the Word better? 
So it's not a real fair playing field. They don't realize it at this point, but they're coming to the living word. Don't tell me about the word. I am the word. I get to tell you about it. Several of our families uh, this weekend are up at a young life camp called Windy Gap. And I wasn't there for this particular event, but I heard this story from somebody who was that there was a, used to be long ago a men's retreat that would happen uh, about this time of the year in May. And a bunch of men from just different states would come together and have a time of sort of Christian fellowship and conversation. And up at Windy Gap, there's a gymnasium, and one afternoon some guys were playing on one sort of side of the court, and they're playing back and forth like this, and they need one more guy to fill out their team, three-on-three or four-on-four. And there's one guy down at the other end just shooting baskets by himself. And so one of the guys goes down and says, hey, would you like to join us and just sort of fill out this team and make it even? Well, I mean, okay. And so they... You know, you take him, we'll take you, and they start playing this game. And then all the other fellows start realizing, this guy doesn't miss. I I wonder if he's somebody. And they say, well, excuse me, we're not sure if we got your first name. Yeah, Pete. What's your last name? Pete Maravich. You see, it was an unlevel playing field, and they had no idea they just got this Hall of Fame player on their team. How would you like to say, he's kind of small, you take him, I'll take the big guy over here. I mean, you'd really feel badly about that. And here's what happened with the Sadducees. They're coming saying, well, I know the Word and who they've stepped into. Pistol Pete, Jesus Christ, he knows the Word. He's going to pull it out on him here in just a second. So they don't know the word. And the other thing, and he looks at him and says, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. You somehow think you have power because you're the blue bloods. You're the aristocracy. You're the upper crust. You don't know anything. You don't know anything about the scriptures and you don't know anything about the power of God. You don't know the scriptures. Let's just unpack these two just for a moment. He says in verse 26, Have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? I I don't know what Jesus is thinking here, but just in this conversation, you know, here are the smart guys, and he's sort of coming back to them saying, You know that thing about the bush? Did you get that part? Maybe a little sarcasm there. He says, Um... Remember when God spoke to Moses and he said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? And notice Jesus gives a very shrewd answer. Remember the Sadducees only believe in the first five books of the Old Testament. So where does he go back to ground his answer? He goes back into one of the books that they would say, yes, we think this is authoritative. He goes back to Exodus. There's no doubt that they understand that what this passage is talking about. They've just missed it. And so he's engaging the Sadducees on their own turf. And he goes back and he grounds his answer in the Bible. And specifically about what God has to say about the resurrection. Now, this is a little bit of an aside, but I think it's important. Jesus does this very often. He gets a question, and of course, out of his own being, he could answer 
very authoritatively, but very frequently he goes back to the Bible, the written word, and says, I'm going to be able to point you back here to help you understand the answer to your question. And the reason I think this is helpful is these two events that have happened to me recently, and probably they would happen to you in some form. Recently, a friend of mine gave me a book uh, about another man's near-death experience. And when he handed me the book, which I had some real problems with as I sort of scanned through. I'm not trying to take away the guy that he died on the table and then he came back, but just some of the religion, sort of the philosophy that came through this near-death experience was at least curious. But, But what was most difficult or problematic for me was when the guy handed me the book, he said, this is what I believe. And so suddenly... His whole doctrine of the resurrection was based on this one man's near-death experience. He was grounding what he believed in somebody else's experience. I went to a funeral last week. Great liturgy, great singing, great scripture reading. The priest stands up and he's going to give this little eulogy. And, And I don't even think he mentioned Jesus Christ. I mean, here's a good chance, here's a good place to mention the resurrection at a death. This would be a great place to bring up Jesus Christ rising from the dead. He did not do it. He did do this. He stood there in front of hundreds of people and he said, here's what gives me hope. And here's what I think should give you hope. I once met a man who had a near-death experience. He floated up near the television screen in the hospital room. And he he showed me everything that happened down for these few minutes that he was dead. And he met some great light and he felt warm and fuzzy about it. Amen. I wanted to stand up. Nancy was practically sitting on my lap. Because I wanted to stand up and say, What about Jesus? I don't care about your friend in Montana. I'm not basing my whole doctrine of the resurrection on some guy who wrote a book or some friend you met in a hospital room. I need some other ground. And when you come to my funeral, or if I preach yours, I'm older than most of you, so when you come to my funeral, (laughs) don't quote some book about somebody's somebody's near-death experience. Tell them about Jesus Christ. Look what Jesus could have done. Jesus himself had a perfect opportunity. These guys didn't believe in the resurrection. And who could Jesus have gone to get? Do you know? He could have gone to go get Lazarus. He didn't have a near-death experience. He had a death experience. He was in a tomb for two days. He wasn't nearly dead. He wasn't mostly dead. He was really dead. And he really came back and he could have said, great question, Sadducees. Let me go get Lazarus and he can tell you all about it. He didn't say that. He went back to what God Almighty says about the resurrection. And that is that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was their God. 
Not I did it for a few hundred years with these guys, or 50 years. I still am their God. And God could have turned around at that point and said, I'm looking at the Moses right now. And so he goes back and he looks, he helps the Pharisees see they just missed it. When God enters into a covenant relationship with his people, it is through eternity. It's not just for 50 or 80 or 25 years here on earth. You see some language, and the reason I, I, draw your, I drew your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 29, you see some very unique language that I don't think you see very often in other world religions, but you see it with Christianity pretty frequently, and you see it in Deuteronomy 29. You see this phrase that God is establishing a covenant today with His people. Meaning God is looking at you and saying, you're mine. And then he turns around and says, and I am establishing a covenant that you will say, you are our God. So God looks at his people and he says, you're mine. And his people look at God and what do they say? You're mine. These personal possessive pronouns, very unusual for the creature to look back to the Creator and say, You're mine. Because it sounds a little bit like ownership. But I don't think it's ownership, I think it's intimacy. If you were new to Christ Community Church today and you stopped me out here in the hallway and you said, well, I heard you had a wife. She, she Wasn't she the one that sat on your lap during that funeral and her name Nancy? Could, could you point her out to me? And I said, well, she, you know, she's right over here. Actually, she is right over here. And, and I said this, you see her? She's mine. I wouldn't be talking about ownership. And you wouldn't be confused by the way I say it. You you would think that's intimacy. And so when Jesus looks at you and He says, You're mine. You, the gospel is, you can look back and say, He's mine. Not from ownership, but from intimacy. He's coming to establish that kind of relationship through all of eternity. And the language is all the way through the Bible, and we see it here in Deuteronomy. So we've looked at Exodus chapter 3. We see this kind of relationship in Deuteronomy 29. Clearly the Sadducees, who only believe in these five books as authoritative, have missed it. You're wrong, Sadducees. You're going in the wrong direction. You've been deceived. And so Jesus is trying to help them turn around. They don't know the power of God. The Sadducees, as I said, they come here thinking they've created sort of this conundrum that Jesus can't get out of with these wives. And and the reason that is, is because they're thinking of the resurrection. They're not thinking about the resurrection because they don't believe in it. But if they were, they were thinking of it as sort of a, a restoration, not a resurrection. 
In other words, life beyond this life is kind of going to be a a bigger version and a better version of what we've got. So the woman gets raised, and then these seven husbands gets raised, and there's this problem because, you know, if it's going to be bigger and better, how is she going to be married to these seven guys? That's not really going to work. And it's the reason is, is because the Sadducees have no idea about the power of God. They think of the resurrection as just a little bit bigger version and better version of what we've got here on earth right now. And that is not true. Now, there are some things that are the same. In other words, when, when, Mo, when God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, they maintain their individual identity. So there is a uniqueness. They're not all just sort of the same. But they're not the same in many, many respects. And, and we see that here. In verse 25, Jesus says, we won't be married We're going to be like the angels. Now, in case you don't know this, when you die, you don't become an angel. I know that's very popular today, but that's not what you become. You don't become an angel. You're like angels in the sense that angels don't marry. There's no reason for for procreation at that point. But we don't become angels. You don't, like in the It's a Wonderful Life, come back to earth and do a good deed and get your wings. That's not the way it works. Yet when I read verse 25, let me just read it again. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are they given in marriage. No marriage in heaven. Now, on one level, I think um, all the all the intimacy, all the uniqueness, all the power that gets generated in a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife that's that's going to be gone. Are we sort of just all going to be friends? I mean, is that? I mean, is that what you get? I remember uh, thinking about this girl when I was in high school. She was in my math class, and she looked like she wanted to go out with me. I could tell it right away. <laughs> and um, so I asked her out, and she said, "As friends, right?" I mean, did I go, "Yeah"? That's exactly what I was hoping for. I won't tell you what I was thinking. I just was hoping for more than that at some level. But, it, but you see, you, you sort of get stuck here feeling like all this intimacy, all this power that, that uniquely happens in this sexual part of a relationship, is that just sort of gone? Well, that can't be true. Because Jesus is saying, you Sadducees, you have no idea about the power of God. You're completely missing it. You've completely undersold and underestimated what you're talking about, about the resurrection. 
Hosea chapter 2, God is talking about Israel and he says this, Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into a desert and speak tenderly to her. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And in that day, I will marry you. I will make you my wife. And you will know the Lord. Now that word know is not talking about understanding something. That's the same word that when Adam knew Eve, he didn't just understand Eve. No man is going to just understand his wife, so I know that's not possible. He knew her in some other way. He knew her sexually. He knew her intimately. He knew her with all that power. And what God is telling His people is, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to allure you. I'm going to lead you into place. I'm going to speak tenderly to you. And I am going to marry you. And you are going to know the Lord God Almighty. Ephesians 5. This is that passage about husbands loving their wives. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. It's a quote from Genesis. And the two will become one flesh. I don't need to give you more information than that. You can get the idea. This is a profound mystery. This is what Paul is saying now. But I am talking about Christ in the church. You see, when you see a marriage, you see a great godly marriage. You're in a great godly marriage. The best that it is, is an echo of what is really going to come. That's the best it can be. And so in heaven, there are no singles. There's nobody married to another person. There's no divorce. Beyond all description, in some way, we're married to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And the intimacy with Him and all lovers of Jesus Christ is going to make the best married sex look like a handshake. The Sadducees have no idea about the power of God. They just think it's going to be a little bit bigger version of what we've got here. And Jesus saying, you have no idea. I conclude by asking myself, and I don't have a great conclusion here. Uh, okay, so what? Helpful information. Good to know. Good comeback, Jesus. Way to go. Got him. But I mean, so so what? And I say everything. In Revelation 19, what is the what is the homecoming for us described like? When we come and when we're with Jesus, what's the language the Apostle John tries to use, he does use to try to communicate what this 
communication with Jesus is going to be like. You remember what he says? It's going to be like a marriage feast. All the people of God are making up the bride. And Jesus comes. And we, at that point, are going to know Him. And so today, some of you are in difficult places. You may be single and wish you were married. You may be married and wish you were single. You may have health issues. You have problems with your own kids. And here on Mother's Day, you're just barely trying to put a veneer on it to try to make it through the day. You've got emotional issues. Maybe you've told them to somebody. Maybe you've never said anything. What you need to know is a great, great lover is coming for your soul. And you need to have that picture firmly planted in your mind so that when you're down here and there's all this difficulty and all this distraction, you know, not so much that you're going to Him, He's coming for you. He's going to make you His bride. And all the pain and difficulty that you may go through down here will be obliterated in the person of Christ. Lord, we come today, we stand on an edge that when we look over the edge, we don't get real clarity. We, we just come to the surface of it. We, we just scratch underneath the first layer. What is the resurrection going to be like? It's going to have a power that we don't understand. But Lord, in order to experience that, you must see, help us to see the truth of the Scriptures. So there are some people here that are married to themselves. They're married to their life. They're married to something in this life. They're trying to pull out of it an eternal intimacy and it never survives. I pray that they would be like the, the people in the D.C. metro, that they would, would see beauty and not race by it. That they would see your face in the beauty of Christ and that that would be a magnet for their souls to want to enter into this everlasting covenant relationship with Almighty God. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your people. Thank You for Your gifts. As we take the offering and we consider what You have done and what You're asking of us, and that You're coming 
for us. May we not be ignorant of the truth of the Scriptures and the power of God. In Jesus' name, amen.